listeners. Welcome to While the Applause is Paused, conversations with regional theater makers. I'm your host, Lacey Tucker. Join me as I talk with artistic leaders around the country about what's challenging and constricting, or creative and exciting, or all of the above, in the pandemic. Curtain up on some real conversation for these real times. This week, we welcome Mary-Kate Burke, Artistic Director of Cape Fear Regional Theater in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Mary-Kate Burke took the helm at CFRT four years ago as only the third artistic director in the theater's 59-year history. She came to the position after nearly 20 years as a director, dramaturg, assistant director, and artistic director. Originally from Connecticut and a graduate of Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, Mary-Kate got her professional start as an assistant director to film legend Arthur Penn, director of the films Bonnie and Clyde and The Miracle Worker, and they worked together on the two-time Tony Award-winning Broadway production of Fortune's Fool. She also assistant directed for Jonathan Lynn, the director of My Cousin Vinny, Clue, and The Whole Nine Yards, and they worked together on an off-Broadway production of A Mother, A Daughter, and A Gun starring Olympia Dukakis. She has also worked at Dee Dee Harris Productions, a nine-time Tony Award-winning commercial producing office, and served as the director of programming for the highly regarded New York Musical Theater Festival. In that role, Mary-Kate spearheaded the effort to create autism-friendly performances for the festival's children's series. Mary-Kate was also producing artistic director for three seasons at Millbrook Playhouse in Mill Hall, Pennsylvania. In my conversation with Mary-Kate, it's so readily apparent that the incredible knowledge and insight she's picked up along her journey helped her meet the leadership challenges of this moment. I want to thank Joanne Javien for connecting me with Mary-Kate. And now, let's dive in. So hello, Mary-Kate Burke. I would love to hear about your theater and your work there, how you ended up there. I know it's, uh, it was about four years ago that you arrived and your theater's mission and your community. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, my name is Mary-Kate Burke, and I um, live in Fayetteville, North Carolina. I moved down here about four years ago from New York. I was looking to produce work for a community that I knew. So I wanted to make theater for people um, and know kind of who they were and why I was doing it and what the goals were and really use theater as a kind of way to bring a community closer together. A friend of mine had been a musical director down here. He had done like six or seven shows and the job opportunity was posted, I think, on like Art Search. And so I emailed my friend Andrew and I said, do you think I would um, like it in Fayetteville, North Carolina, which I had never heard of before? And he said, yeah, I think you would like it there. And I think he said, I think you'd love it. And I think you'd be really good for the theater. So I applied to run it and very swiftly moved down here and have really loved both the community and the theater and the support that the theater enjoys in the community. And um, so Fayetteville is a really interesting city. It's got about 300,000 people in it. It is, I believe it's the 10th largest city in the state of North Carolina. And it is a majority minority community. And it is the most notably known for being the home of Fort Bragg. 
Fort Bragg is the largest military installation by population in the continental United States, which actually becomes all of those details are very important to articulate in a military community because, you know, details on a mission are very important. So I have learned that you can't just say it's the largest military base. You have to say by population in the continental United States. So I moved down here about four years ago and programmed, you know, three seasons and got through 2.65 seasons before <laughs> before COVID Very happened. Very precise. Yeah. The military would be proud of you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, and it's been awesome. You know, our mission is to bring the community together to think harder, laugh deeper, share experiences, and grow as a community. And that is exactly what we do. We produce six main stage shows. Usually there are three plays and three musicals. And then we also do a, for 29 years, this year would have been the 30th year, we do the best Christmas pageant ever, which is our community engagement show. We have three companies of up to 60 community members perform in the best Christmas pageant ever. And it's seen by anywhere between seven and 10,000 people. So that's been happening in this community for 29 years. This year would have been its 30th year, but we actually ended up um, putting it on pause, obviously, because of COVID. And we look forward to next year when we can really do it to its fullest, you know, celebration. I am amazed by the 180 people that you are working with for that yearly show. And I'm also so touched that um, people would want to see the same thing every year for 29 years. It must be a really good show. Yeah. Well, they also, it's really interesting because like sometimes we have multiple generations of the same family because it's predominantly children, but adults also, there are some adult roles in it. You know, sometimes we'll have a mom and a daughter. One time we had three generations. We had a grandmother, a mom, and a daughter all performing together. And I think that is part of the um, kind of joy of it is you as a kid, oftentimes, I think about 7,000 um, students come to see it each year. So you see it as a kid, maybe when you're younger, and then you think like, oh, I could do that. And then you come and you audition, and then you're in it, and you're in it for your classmates. And then, you, you know, you age out and you become a parent yourself and then your child gets to carry on the tradition. So it is a very touching thing that we that we do in the community. Although I do have to say like it's an interesting journey because there is a lot of sentiment around it in a really great way and a lot of emotions and feelings, but then there's also 29 years of it. It's like how do you keep it fresh after that many years? So this particular year, what we were planning to do was um, actually, we had intended to do two shows in the holiday slot. So we were going to do the best Christmas pageant ever, and we were going to alternate it with Black Nativity, which is Langston Hughes' play that um, is done a lot in North Carolina. It has um, a lot of spiritual gospel music in it. It's been running in Greensboro for a similar length of time. I think it's been running in Greensboro, which is about 90 minutes away for like 25 to 30 years. So we were going to kind of alternate to create new traditions and then maybe do the best Christmas pageant um, every other year. And people do approach me a lot of places like at the Harris Teeter, which is the grocery store down here. Um, and they tell me if they're either for this new um, plan or <laughs> against this new plan. But we want what we're trying to do is keep it so that it feels special and like something that you get to do um, instead of just the same thing every year. So it's the balance of keeping it fresh and keeping it running for more and more years to continue the tradition. There is a very 
strong tradition at a lot of regional theaters of getting the community involved and in, you know, in ways that um, as New York based, based artists, we may not be aware of. Yeah. Um, and how important that is yeah. and how integrated you are into the community yep. in that way. Yeah. I love what you said, think harder, laugh deeper, grow as a community. Yeah. I think that's what you said. That's yeah beautiful mission. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have a mission, we have a vision and we have values. And it's interesting because we are in the journey of like starting to CFRT is in, in the beginning phases of kind of a capital campaign and an imagining of what the next, um, we're 59 years old. So we're trying to figure out what is the next kind of half a century look like for us. And uh, our theater was purchased in the 80s. And um, I think it was 85. We got the building in 87. We paid the mortgage off. So we own our building, which is awesome, especially in times that are so have so much um, turmoil economically surrounding them, particularly for our field to not have a mortgage that we have to pay is pretty incredible. As we think about what is the next half a century look like for this institution, CFRT is very distinctive. It was founded by a small group of, of people, and then it was run for 50 years by one woman. Wow. So, yeah, a local woman named Bo Thorpe ran the theater for 50 years as the artistic director. Then there was a second artistic director whose name was Tom Quaintance. He's now running a theater in Virginia. And I am only the third artistic director at this institution over almost 60 years. Bo's still here. She lives here. We just did Christmas caroling with some of the kids from the theater in like little family pods for the Salvation Army, which she's been doing for 30 years. It is a very civically oriented community in large part, I think, because of having such a strong military community, you know, it's very different. Like if people say they're going to come, they come, they show up, they do what they say they're going to do because it has, a again, there's like a kind of a training and an awareness that like, you know, how your word is very important. And so I've really enjoyed that aspect of being in Fayetteville. Um, and and it, it can be a little different than a city that is you know, has more bustle and hustle and is, you know, I only say this because I was in the commercial theater world, which definitely has its place. Um, and I really enjoyed being there when I was there, but it, it is different. It's, it's capitalistic. You know what I mean? That's the intent behind it. It's theater for profit. And there are innovations that happen in that field because of that. But it just the alignment of like, what I love about doing a show is I love, you know, getting 300 people in the theater and being in my office and hearing those moments where the laughter hits and knowing what line was said because you know the community you know what i mean and that that for me is the part of of it that keeps you going in these tough times you know which it is it is a very complicated moment for this industry as Indeed a whole it is yeah yeah, yeah. That's a perfect segue because I would love to know what happened in March when the shutdowns happened. What were you in the midst of? What did you have to close? What plans had to change? And then how did you make those decisions? Yeah, totally. Um, it, you know, I was up in New York auditioning for Jelly's Last Jam. We have this magnificent um, director and choreographer whose name is Brian Harlan Brooks, and he was scheduled to direct and choreograph Jelly's Last Jam. And Jelly's Last Jam is one of my all-time favorite musicals. It's not easy to get the rights because you have to like go to the author. It's not um, represented by a licensing company. So it's not represented by like MTI or Tams Whitmark or anything like that. You have to contact the agents for 
the book writer and the lyricist and the composers and then negotiate with them. And so we, that was a two year journey for me to get the rights to Jelly's Last Jam. And Brian is amazing. He is based in New York and he was the associate choreographer on Motown and he was the dance captain for the Color Purple production with Fantasia. Um, And he, we, you know, he and I are just, we feel a lot of the same values in regards to theater. And so I was up in New York and I was auditioning for, we had a handful of roles. So the way that we work is we're a letter of agreement theater. And we usually have about two equity contracts per production. Um, and the re- and it's a blend of, you know, national, regional, and then Fayetteville citizens is, is usually how it works out. So we were auditioning because the role of Jelly is quite complicated. You have to be a singer, you have to be a tapper, you have to be a phenomenal actor to carry the show. And when I got there, there was no, it was February and there was no hand sanitizer. You couldn't find hand sanitizer anywhere. Ah, yes. And I, yes. Had, I had lived in New York during Ebola. I had lived in New York during 9-11. And I thought to myself, oh, wow, this is coming for us. It's coming for us soon. And it's going to come for us really hard. So I literally texted my marketing director and company manager. And I said, go to every store that you can buy all of the hand sanitizer and then talk to our, you know, supply company about installing hand sanitizers at all of the entrances. So we were one of the first theaters in the state of North Carolina to put out a kind of public response to COVID-19. We were in the middle of a run of murder for two. I love that show. Yeah. It's so fun. Yeah. And it was a great production. I mean, I think we had had two weeks of shows and most of the performances were sold out. And we immediately started, we made our front of house staff who are all, they're largely, um, we have one front of house staff who's a retired colonel. Um, There are a lot of military people who are our front of house staff, but they're also older, they're retirees. And our- I have to ask, do your shows always start on time then? (laughs) If, 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 uh, if. (laughs) Willie had his way, they would, unfortunately. Um, no, not always. Usually they start about five minutes late. But I will tell you that if we don't open the house, like especially during previews, when we're sorting a lot of stuff out during our preview process, because our texts are kind of on the shorter side, it, it, Willie will hover starting at seven o'clock for a 730 show and he'll just stand there and he'll look at you. <laughs> um, so he would prefer for it to, um, but that is very funny and also true. Um, so... so um, yeah, we, we started, we had the front of house staff wear gloves and masks. We stopped recycling our tickets. We stopped looking at taking the tickets. Um, and we had hand sanitizer everywhere and we sprayed down all of our chairs. Then throughout the window of March, the governor kind of put more and more limitations on gatherings as as COVID made its way to our state. And so we complied with all of those. And ultimately, we canceled the last week of the run And what we did was we were allowed at that time uh, uh, up to 100 people in a space. So we added one more performance and we called all of our season ticket holders and we invited them to join us that had book seats for that final performance. And then we shut the show down. And there was a lot of, you know, a couple of the things that were kind of interesting to look back on in terms of the decisions that we made were you know, nobody had, you didn't have a lot of run runway to make these decisions. You just had to do the best you could with the information you had at the time. So at the time that we shut down, 
Um, the CDC was not recommending masks. And we also were being told that um, by April it was going to be solved and that the hot weather of which North Carolina has a tremendous amount of heat and it's humid heat, which at that time they were saying was helpful because it would kind of create a heavier droplet or whatever. Those were all things that were like pros and advantages. And we were going to be, you know, back up, no problem by the summertime. And I kind of thought to myself, well, if you look to Asia, where COVID has been around for longer, everybody's wearing masks. So I said, even though right now they're saying it's not advised, it will become advised soon. So we all started making masks. We gave away a thousand masks to the local hospital. And then we gave away masks to all of our season ticket holders, a lot of whom are elderly. And we gave away masks to our sponsors. And then we started selling masks. And we literally did this. We, st- we started making masks so that as soon as the CDC said, we recommend you wear masks, we had them. We had about 2,000 masks ready to go. Um, and we deployed them very quickly. And that was... Um, strategically, you know, a, a, a way to say to the people who have stuck with us, the theater for so long that we are going to stick by you and we're going to serve you in whatever way we can, which at this moment is with our sewing skills and the fact that we have a costume shop upstairs. So we did that. And then we moved, we also moved online and we, we were the first theater in the state of North Carolina to move our educational content online. In the state of North Carolina, we had a month-long shutdown that really turned into a six-week stay-at-home order. We kind of anticipated that there was a possibility that this was a longer journey than what we were being told. And so our goal was to try to help children learn to love online learning. So we had two different programs that we offered right out of the gate. One was just a drop-in class from three to four. Every day it was free. So anybody could do it. If you were some in Minneapolis because Fayetteville has a very high transient population because Fort Bragg is a training ground for special operations. So people come here and they live here for two or three years and then they go and get stationed somewhere else. So our turnover rate in this community is incredibly high. So we had a lot of people join us from Colorado. We had some people join us from Germany, just other places that they had moved on to, um, which was a really nice kind of homecoming and reunion for people who were very involved in our education programs just a year or two ago um, that suddenly could reconnect with us in the middle of this crisis where everybody was everybody was going through the same thing at the same time. You know, it, it, this wasn't just regional. It wasn't like a hurricane, which we experienced, right? Or it wasn't like 9-11, which I know the nation felt, but it was so impactful in New York and DC. This was different. This was a a global phenomenon that we were all going through together. So to have those windows to find and kind of re- invigorate old connections was was uh, it was helpful you know it kind of made you find some silver linings the other thing that we offered was a it was paid by the week and it was during the school day so it was like from 9 to 10 or 10 to 11 or 11 to 12 depending on your age group and it was also for working parents who really found themselves suddenly at home with their kids still having to telecommute and figure out how to do their job while their kids were there and keeping them engaged and active and part of the goal around that program which was called edutainment was to help <laughs> yeah i love that yeah it the goal behind it was to try to 
help kids learn to love online learning because we thought this might be a skill that they would have to engage with as the pandemic wore on. And, you know, I mean, if you're a kid who's not predisposed to like math and then suddenly you have to learn math online with a teacher in another community, you know, location, those are hard skills that even many adults I know don't have. Right. And so to ask a seven, eight, nine, 10 year old to do something of their own volition when they could be doing something else because all of those tools exist in your computer is a challenge. So what we wanted to try to do was expose as many kids as possible to fun, creative play on Zoom so that when it became time, you know, in the spring or late summer or, you know, in the fall as, as, as happened for kids to have to do online learning in the, cause that's where in this state we're, unless you're at a private school, we're currently, or rather in our county, cause it is a county by county decision. We are, we are online learning at least for the next, um, they just announced Cumberland County is going to postpone uh, phase B, which is part in, in real world, you know, part in classroom and part online learning. They're going to postpone it for a while because of the the numbers that we're seeing in a post Thanksgiving, you know, kind of world. So anyway, that's some of the immediate stuff and reactions that we did. And we had a lot of very complicated meetings with our executive committee. Um, it was harrowing. No, no leaders that I talked to in theatrical not-for-profits were prepared or had any I mean, all of the decisions that we had to make were scary and hard. And I don't think that's distinctive to theater. I mean, I think that was so many industries, you know, that we're suddenly seeing. I mean, we were going from Shrek, which was 10,000 people attended Shrek the Musical over a five-week run. Here, it was our second highest selling show in the history of the theater, to Murder for Two, which was selling out, you know, nine of 12 performances, to suddenly having no income and having no product really, except for these kind of virtual offerings, which were innovative and we were happy to do them, but the scale of them was not the same as the scale of our normal business models. And so we had to make a lot of really complicated and hard decisions. We were very fortunate to get a PPP loan here and what that allowed us to do. And I was just very honest with the staff. I mean, I had a staff meeting where I cried and I was like, this thing is scary. Half a million people worldwide are going to die. And I, we have no control and all we can do is do the best we can. And I said, you know, if it's back, if we're back by the summertime, we'll be okay. And if we're not, then we're, we, I have no idea how many people I'm, we're still going to be able to employ, you know, and I was just very honest with them. And I said, if you're a technician who can get a job in another field, if you can go get a job in construction or anything, you should go get that job now. And, you know, there was a $600 federal stimulus at the time. So I said, look, we got a PPP loan, so our jobs are secure for the next eight weeks. But if you want me to fire you, tell me and I will, you know, because everybody had to make their own best decisions for their own families. You know, I mean, I, I could only tell them the information I had about the theater and then everybody had to go away and think about what made the most sense for them. So we made it through the PPP loan. And at that time, we were looking at our summer camp programming and normally we have about 250 to 275 kids come through here each summer doing our summer shows. The CDC created guidelines for in-person summer camps, which is what we ended up doing. We had, instead of having one company of like 45 to 60 kids, which is what we normally do, we'll do like Lion King with like 45 to 60 kids in a camp. We did three productions of Lion King. 
um, they all had their own discrete director, choreographer, and um, we didn't have musical directors. We This year we did Frozen. We kind of like had them lip sync along to tracks because we didn't want them to be singing in the same space. Oh, that's and, a really innovative solution. Yeah. And what we found was parents, we sent out this, we did a lot of surveys because in the middle of this also, you know, there are science, which, which we, we follow, right? And then there's also the question that we always asked ourselves is like, what can we do to serve the community? And then we had the mindset of there is no risk, there's only learning because we knew budgetarily what we were looking at through the end of the summer. So we said to ourselves, let's try to create new programs or let's try to kind of tweak old programs and figure out how we can serve the community in this moment. And by the summertime, kids had been at home, you know, March, April, May for three months. And parents were, we sent out a survey and we said, you know, it's your kid, it's your choice. We can either do online camps or we can do in-person camps with, you know, 15 kids or fewer in a room. We'll check temperatures. We'll make them wear face masks. We need these little shields sewn to hats for them. Um, we sprayed everything down multiple times a day. Each room had its own bathrooms because this was in a moment where they were starting to realize that it was like also, you know, being kind of spread through like flushing toilets and stuff like that. So overwhelmingly, 85% of parents wanted in-person opportunities with very limited groups of students. And so that's what we did. We had throughout the course of the summer about, I think, 220 kids this year come through our camps, and there was not one reported case of COVID at our institution. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. It is amazing, and it was just a lot of I mean, everybody was like, what, did, what was the silver bullet? And that's the thing is there is no silver bullet. It was just a lot of hard work and attention to details. I mean, I don't normally work um, with children, and this year I was directing camps. You know, I directed camps every week this summer our director of marketing. She also directed camps. Our managing director was kind of the check-in person. So we all took these additional roles on. It's a moment about survival, really. Um, and it, it's not necessarily like, where does my light shine the brightest? It's about, you know, where can I help keep the lights on <laughs> is kind of how we viewed it. And we learned a lot through that. And then we were really lucky to be one of only four theaters in the state of North Carolina to receive the um, funding through the NEA CARES Act. In large part, we wrote that because of our education programs. Um, and that underwrites the salary of our education director and a portion of the marketing director, who's now kind of the assistant education director in this moment. And so that's uh, that was a very big benefit to us because, again, for me, it was like, how many people can I keep employed for how long? And eventually we did, like most theaters, we laid off a fair amount of our staff. I think we laid off about 50% of our staff. And then those that remained, we all took a reduction in our pay. So we all went down to 75% time and effort for quite some time. But the agreement that we made with the staff is that as time went on, the staff that remained, we were like, your jobs are secure through the end of the next fiscal year, which is ends on 6-30-2021. What was hard about the journey at the beginning was everything was reactive because nobody saw this coming. So as we moved into our next fiscal year cycle, what the managing director um, down here, whose name is Ella Wren, and she is magnificent, what she and I both said is, 
we have a hard time canceling things. That's very hard for us because as artists, as people in theater, we're so aligned around the principle that the show must go on. So we adopted mm -hmm. a paradigm where we only wanted to announce that we were doing things that we knew that we could fulfill because we also felt like our customers the first time around were going to be willing to like let it go because we didn't because nobody saw this coming but you can't keep promising things that you don't deliver and expect your social capital to stay high and we did actually we did produce a show we produced a lady day at Emerson's bar and grill Yes, I heard about this. So please, please tell. Yeah, it, we did this in the fall. We, there was a gas station half a block away that was for sale. And I called up the owner who loved the theater. He had been coming to the theater for 30 years. And I said, you know, I, I want to do a show outside in the fall as soon as Governor Cooper allows groups to congregate again. Would you rent us your space? And he was so generous. He said, we'll just give you the space. I looked at the season and I said, what can I do safely? And Lady Day is a one-woman show. There is a musical director who has a couple of lines. We had a band of three. We had piano, upright bass, and drums. And they were all six feet away from each other. And they all wore masks the whole time. And then we had um, a wonderful actress from Charlotte who had done the part before join us. We provided her with her own independent housing that was like a cottage behind somebody's house so that she was not involved with, you know, air conditioning of like a hotel or anything like that. We worked with our local um, health department, which is phenomenal down here. We have this wonderful woman. Um, Dr. Jennifer Green, who responds to e any email I send her, she responds to. She, um, most recently, we had a question about a camper for our Charlie Brown Christmas that had been exposed at school and we needed to know when she could come back, when it would be safe for her to come back. And I emailed her on a Sunday at like seven o'clock in the evening and she got back to me like within two hours. I mean, we are so lucky to have... Um, uh, such an incredible resource down here. So we created a COVID plan after reading about equity, the SDC, you know, the stage actors unions, we read all of their kind of requirements and we put together this proposal, even though we weren't using in this particular production, any union members, we wanted to find out what the best practices from the different unions were. Um, and we put together a proposal that we sent to Dr. Green and actually, interestingly, there was one thing that we were requiring weekly testing. And she said, that's actually, if everybody's not showing symptoms, that's probably too aggressive. This was also at a time where, you know, testing wasn't super abundant. Um, and so then we, we, so we stepped that back and we asked everyone, you know, it was a lot of conversations. We said to the woman who was playing Billy, we said, do you feel would you feel okay? Equity is recommending this. We've talked to our local health commissioner based on the numbers in this community. She's saying that's too aggressive. So instead of every week, would you feel comfortable if it were like during the rehearsal process and then during the performance process? And she said, yes. And so then we, that we communicated that. So it was kind of a constant checking in with everybody involved about what they felt comfortable with. And we produced this show outside. Um, people were seated in groups of two or four, five and six feet away from each other. And then the first row of chairs was seven feet away from the stage. So we followed, we kind of followed all of these best practice recommendations. We did temperature checks and people were, were in the audience were required to wear their masks. If they snuck them down after they walked through, we had our house managers walk through with a sign on a popsicle stick 
and they would just wave the sign in front of them that said, please put your mask back on. And it was very successful. I mean, it ran at something like 90% capacity over the three-week run. Um, and people were so grateful. They would come through, you know, the drapery we had set up and they would look and they would go, oh my God, you know, you just felt like it was a tall drink of water for their souls. So that part of innovating was very, was very, very joyful. Um, and we did that show for three weeks. But what was interesting also to kind of experience was as a society, we're living through a trauma. We're living through multiple traumas. We're living through that. We're living through a kind of racial um, trauma. We're living through our industry specifically is living through a trauma because th there is a death that's happening in our industry right now. And there was at the time, this was right before the elections. And North Carolina is a very purple state. And so <laughs> there was so many things people were feeling. And what was interesting was like, I realized that Billie Holiday's life was also, you know, even though the production is meant to be a story of triumph, her life was hard. I mean, she lived through yeah. a lot of things. And so I would watch the audience leave. And, and, and it was interesting in normal times, I don't think they would have been as affected, but I watched some of the audience members and I was like, oh, I think this might be hurting them because they're already so raw and vulnerable and they were looking forward to something that filled up their cup. Some people left even more wounded, I think, than they were when they came through. So as an artistic leader with a mission to bring the community together, I said, you know, I feel like I might need to read the room a little bit more and kind of change change the programming. And we had the space and we had a permit to use the space for two more weeks. So what we did was then we, we went to produce a two-week cabaret of movie musical songs. It was around Halloween. So we did, you know, stuff from Little Shop of Horrors. We did stuff from Footloose. We did stuff from Hocus Pocus. We just tried to do something that was a little more buoyant and celebratory in nature in nature people really enjoyed that and were grateful for that because you know this is a very long trauma i mean this is a year and a half by the time it's probably done not that serious or challenging theater doesn't have its place but what i really want to use theater for is an opportunity to bring disparate or not people who wouldn't normally realize how much they have in common. I try to bring them closer to each other. That's what I want to do with the art that, I, that we create at the theater. And if you can get a whole bunch of people in a room who are from diff different political parties, who are from different backgrounds, different races, different religions, and they all laugh at the same thing. That to me is like the deepest fulfillment of the mission, because I think laughter is a particularly intimate way to communicate that you've all received something in the same way. And so that's what I strive to do. So then we did like a this cabaret for two weeks and that felt that felt good. It was what people needed in that moment in time. Well, I actually got tears in my eyes when you described people coming in to see Lady Day and being so astonished by the transformation that you had created there. Because I think even if some people found it raw, you know, or, or it, it rubbed their already raw emotions, just the idea of seeing anything live yeah. seems like it would have been beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I can also understand that idea. There are certain things that I watch on Netflix or whatever, and I start them and I'm like, nope. Yep. Too, like, nope, 
too much right now. That's not what I need right now. That's right. Not to say that in another year, you might not go back and love that show, but you do, we all have to protect because this is not a sprint. This thing that we're in the middle of is a marathon. So you really have to be mindful of protecting your emotional health. I had a couple of follow-up questions. Well, first of all, I just loved what you had to say about, you know, not wanting to keep planning things and for the community and then canceling them and you and you deciding that your your way of moving through this was going to be if we know we can't deliver, we're not going to put it out there and that is important to hang on to that social capital. Yeah. I just that just really struck me as and everything that you said, really the thread was was your relationship to your community. Yeah. I also just thought it was really smart that you ran what did you call it? Edutainment. Edutainment, yeah. That you had it paid by the week. Yeah. Because it was a time when probably people didn't know what they might want to commit to, whether it be time or money. Yep. Yep. So that just struck me as, again, being very sensitive to the community. I wanted to ask you just about, you talked a lot about your staff, but how has it been for, I'm sure you have local artists and, you know, repeat people coming from New York. What have you been able to do, if anything, to help those people who might've been relying on you or just to, you know, keep the relationship. Yeah. I mean, the, so with the first full production we canceled was Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, which is a show that I was meant to direct. You know, we, I think we canceled it on a Wednesday. Everybody was supposed to fly down on like a Saturday or a Sunday for rehearsal to start on Tuesday. We tried to honor people as best we could. So what we did with everybody, regardless if they were equity or non-equity, we paid them two weeks because we felt like that was the right thing to do. And then we brought them all together to do a reading on Zoom because, you know, they were they were a week away from first rehearsal. So a lot of them had done a tremendous amount of prep and that was joyful. And we were very lucky that um, Robert Newman, who was a on Guiding Light for something like, I don't know, 29 years. And he was also the, I think, the president of this of SAG or vice president of SAG. He was to perform in our production of Curious Incident. So we also did a series of readings on Facebook of the book itself. And those were very popular uh, for a while. I mean, I think where we kind of netted out as a theater at the beginning is we adapted really hard to virtual programming. Um, But then once the theater started to like all do that, we kind of totally cut that off in large part because, you know, I feel like there is a medium that does actors on screens and that's called TV and film. And I just believe that they do that better than I ever will. And I don't think I can take my little, not little, I mean, we're one of the bigger theaters in the community, but we're a $1.6 million annual operating budget. When you look at TV and film budgets, we're very little. (laughs) And I just don't know that we can convert ourselves to that platform successfully. So we have really tried to figure out whenever we do do anything online that it's engagement oriented and participatory instead of observing. And then we've really also just tried to figure out how we can do things safely in person. So I think there is a lot of cool like innovation happening, but I just don't know that that's like what our brand is. And so that's not where we've decided to focus our efforts, which is not to diminish anybody who who has. It is a challenging moment, especially for those employees who are 1099, who I think are really tending to fall through a lot of cracks. Um, our local 
Arts Council recently got some state funding that they gave away to individual artists. Um, so I sat on a grant panel for that. It was grants of up to $1,000, and I think about 23 or 25 people received them in the past month. I think the state of North Carolina has done an incredible job in large part thanks to our advocacy arm, which is called Arts North Carolina. In terms of the state, I think gave $9.3 million of their CARES Act funding to local arts councils to distribute to their members. So Cape Fear Regional Theater was also a recipient of some CARES Act funding through that, through our local arts council. But that money came from the state legislature. So we're so grateful to the state and the city and the county leaders who have recognized how suddenly we have been thrown into incredibly challenging circumstances in terms of how we can continue to survive. I think smart communities and smart politicians realize that once we are able to congregate, making sure that the institutions that provide for that opportunity, your music halls, your theaters, your symphonies, to make sure that those institutions are ready so that, you know, because we're going to have to start planning that stuff three, six months out to make sure that they're staffed enough to like make that on-ramp happen. Because once people can get out, you want to make sure that the opportunity for them to get out exists. You don't want to have that moment happen and then, you know, realize, oh, crap, we don't have, our arts organizations have all suffered and kind of faltered. And so now we need to give them some money. You want them to be in continual, at least um, some form of, of skeletal staffing so that they can be available to meet the moment when the moment arrives, not six months or eight months after the moment arrives. It sounds like from what you've said that that is what's happening with you, that you are managing to stay in a, a state of openness and creativity even, you know, at this time. And I'm curious what you think a reopening looks like in terms of timing and, you know, what you need to put in place. Yeah. So during this whole thing, like one of the, one of my personal beliefs is that time is the most valuable currency any of us have, but it is also often the least appreciated. And that comes from, you know, a deep like kind of personal, like when I was very young, uh, I think I was in first grade, my father had his first stroke. And throughout his life, he had a series of strokes. And I'll never forget watching, you know, this man who was an immigrant from Ireland who put himself through undergraduate, and he put himself through law school at Georgetown University, very bright, ambitious man who really was the American dream, watching him have to learn to rewrite because he lost his ability to write. So watching how frustrating that was. And just as a young kid, having that be like one of your first real memories of childhood really makes does something to your psyche of like, oh, like none of this is guaranteed. No, none of us know how long we have. What we have done at the theaters really kind of think about that as like, okay, well, COVID was a real surprise, but how do we not lose time? Because we have time to think about things in different ways. Um, and we were very lucky. We were already on kind of a long conversation with a local foundation about uh, receiving some capital support to do some renovations. 
Well, when we when this all started, we were talking to them about possibly the theater does not have a lot of parking. It's a big if you know if you're going to do like a SWOT analysis of the theater, um, one of our weaknesses would genuinely be um, we don't have a lot of parking spaces. Uh, the theater itself is a converted movie theater, um, and so there's like a little bit of grandfathering it in, and then there's a church um, right across the street, which most times our need for parking is symbiotic with their need with, you know, and they have a lot of parking. So uh, as I like to joke, we're like Blanche Dubois and we're always relying upon the kindness of strangers for our parking. (laughs) And, um, uh, so we were talking to them about that, about possibly like asking them for funding to purchase some land to turn it into a parking lot. And COVID happened. And Ella and I looked at each, that's the managing director here at the theater. And I looked at each other and I said, you know, the, we weren't really prepared for this yet, but because I think we're going to be shut down through the end of this season, we should just figure out what it would save us to do this renovation now instead of in two or three years. And we looked at it and just shut our main stage down for three months, which is approximately how long we think the renovation will take, would cost us $250,000 in earned income. So armed with that and armed with a foundation that kickstarted $250,000, we have decided to undergo a renovation of the interior of the theater from the proscenium to the back wall, which is a, a first phase of what we hope is a larger kind of capital campaign. So the total cost of that campaign is going to be $750,000. And we're already um, more than halfway there, which is wow. which is remarkable. Yeah. And we're so- During we're, a pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we're so grateful. And in large part, it's because people really love the theater and they want to see it survive and they want to see it thrive. One of the things also that we are doing with this renovation is we are bringing our HVAC systems up to code. You know, they're just old, so they're not doing the things that newer systems would do in terms of intake air. Um, And that has also been a helpful thing to talk to the community about so that when we do rejoin each other, which I am anticipating will be in the fall of next year, we'll do camps in person again over the summer. And but I'm thinking we'll be back in person in September if we get the appropriate vaccines available to our communities, you know. And so I'm hoping next year looks a little more normal. And I think for regional theaters, I just read this article, I think it was in Forbes magazine talking about, you know, it's probably going to take Broadway till 2025 because so much of the Broadway market is international um, and that it may also mean some of the kind of more tourist heavy shows close. But it did Mm -hmm. say that regional theaters are probably going to be the first wave of resurgence of theater. And I think that is correct. And I'm also grateful that, you know, when you look at some of the like major regional theaters, they have five, $10 million annual operating budgets. And they, to survive this, have had to lay off a lot more staff because they had more staff to begin with. If you have a staff of 14, which is what we had, you're kind of scaling back up. You know, I think we're at seven or eight now or scaling back up is going to be an easier journey than if you had 70 members and you're down to 15 or 20. You know what I mean? That's just going to take you longer to get that bigger machine moving. So I really think theaters that are of our size are going to be on the first wave of figuring it out, you know, and what our best practice is. And like, okay, well, you know, some half the cast or three quarters of the cast is vaccinated and the other quarter is in what are those, what are the rules? What are the operating procedures around that? There's just going to be a whole bunch of like, one of the things you have had to do as a leader in this moment is you've had to like kind of get your degree in public policy and health. 
I am constantly reading CDC websites in a way that I certainly never did before this, but it's what I have to do to keep my business running healthy and successfully, you know? So, so that's what I think will happen. I think we'll be back in the fall of next year. I am cautiously optimistic and, and at the worst it's late fall, but that's, that's kind of what I'm thinking. Yeah. Well, it, you'll be back in time to have your Christmas show again next year. <laughs> that is correct. Yeah. I, <laughs> that will, right. be, will you call it the 30th or the 31st? We'll year? call it the 30th. It will be the okay. 30th. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's going to be confusing forevermore, however. You're always going to be like, well, I mean, it's actually been 33 years, but I'm calling it 32. So um, I just want to ask you one last question that I think we, we want to chat about a little, which is the murder of George Floyd and um, the discussion that that's caused in the theater community about white theater people needing to practice allyship and practice listening and to practice anti-racism. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, you know, how has that affected your theater? What have your internal conversations been like? Have you had external conversations with other theaters, um, with other people in your region about any of the systemic problems that are affecting our industry? Yeah. One of the things that we work very hard for at the theater is that our the inside of our building should be a reflection of the outside of our building. When you look at our season, right, at the Cape Fear Regional Theater, because we do believe that we should be a reflection of the, of the community that we serve, we do have a lot of plays that are for minority audiences because they are not a minority here. In Fayetteville, they are the majority. And our diversity statistics are very strong. We have an annually 40 to 45% of our audience is diverse, which is not an exact match of our community, but it is probably better than most theaters. So it's a complicated moment. Here is where I like to be parts of solutions. And so what CFRT has, I have heard myself say so many times, you know, our staff is predominantly white. We are a very white staff. That is not distinctive to our theater. That is a theatrical. And it's also a not-for-profit kind of paradigm. Um, it's probably an arts paradigm. I don't think theater is the only industry going through this question of how do you make job opportunities more available. And so because we have, I've heard myself say the same thing over and over again, which is, you know, we put out applications and we get candidates and, you know, it, the hiring just has not reflected the diversity of our community. So now I'm like past hearing myself say it enough times that I'm trying to figure out, okay, Mary-Kate, well, you've identified the problem. Uh, if I were an actor in the like play of my life, I would say, don't play the problem. So how do you get past playing the problem to playing an action that solves it and gets it to where you want to go, right? So if what I, if the, what I want is a solution where I've stated one of our tenants, one of our values at the theater is that we should be a genuine reflection of the community that we're in, and my staff is not that. How do I move past the problem to solving the problem? So we're currently in conversations with Fayetteville State University, which is a historically Black college and university in our community. And they are starting at their undergraduate level an arts administration track with the goal of growing it over several years into being a minor. And so that is kind of one place that we're having some conversations about internships, but I realize that that is not really... Um, the solution that the moment is calling for, because I have done a lot of reading about it, if there is economic 
disparity, the opportunities for internships um, starts to vanish from the, the people of color community. So what we're currently doing is we're writing some grants and we're trying to actually get a fellowship, a paid fellowship at CFRT that would be in partnership with a graduate. And we're, where we're thinking right now is that it will probably be a graduate from their business major. Because also a lot of times mm. people find their way into theater because they performed, right? You start out as a performer and then you plinko your Absolutely. way into whatever field. But like theater could stand probably some better business practices. So why aren't we like also trying to solve that problem as well? So we're currently in a conversation about that. And it is my hope that we would be able to raise funding so that this fellowship could be paid at the same rate as our not director titles, right? And provide the same health plan. And we're trying to do that in partnership with Fayetteville State with the goal of writing grants this year so that we can put it into practice next year. And then hopefully that could continue to be a pipeline and create opportunities for other either theatrical institutions in North Carolina or also nationally who are doing a search and they're looking for a managing director or they're looking for a general manager or a marketing director. Again, it's trying to formalize pathways of opportunity. And that is where I have really tried to put my focus uh, in terms of addressing the issues. I mean, it's just such a big challenge. And so you have to look at where can I affect positive change? Thank you. As I say, when I ask this question, and I acknowledge that we are two white women having this conversation. uh, And I hope that if some of our listeners have feedback for us, that they will let us know, because we don't always speak about things in the best way we want to learn, and we want to be allies. So last question really quick. What is giving you joy right now at the end of 2020? Oh, God. (laughs) I mean, honestly, it, 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 I had my mind, I I was able to like align my mind in my like marathon distance to getting to the end of 2020. I'm just glad we did. Do you know what I mean? And I'm glad there's a vaccine. I mean, that's giving me a lot of hope. And I and I will have to figure out like, you know, right now we're thinking we'll do another show or two in the spring outside. We don't know what shows those will be. We don't know what venue it'll be at. So like there's a lot of work to do when we get back from the break. But to be honest, I'm looking forward to kind of like taking a week and unplugging myself from a lot of my devices and just having some time to like, you know, refuel. Because, you you know, at these leadership positions, you're not only responsible for trying to figure out your company, but you also are trying to align, like take everyone with you. You know, and it's a scary moment. It's a scary moment for your staff. It's a scary moment for your sponsors. It's a scary moment for your community. So it's been a lot of like feeling like, you know, I just am looking forward to getting a week of just me, which I know sounds sounds terrible, but no, that, that is, sounds like uh, something that will bring you joy. And yeah, that is important. <laughs> yep, indeed, indeed. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, I've also been like, I've been rewatching Netflix shows that I've already seen. Me too. And I've heard that this is like a thing because I thought it, I was like, I'm so embarrassed. I can't believe I'm rewatching all of Stranger Things. Yeah, I did. Yep. I'm rewatching Girl, I Got You Be. I'm rewatching Grey's Anatomy. You know how many seasons there are of Grey's Anatomy? Yeah. There are so many seasons of Grey's Anatomy. But, um, but it's because you know it's going to happen. So you feel like you right. have some modicum of control. Exactly. Yeah. This yeah. is completely a phenomenon, which I had yeah. no idea it was a phenomenon. Yeah. 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 
<laughs> no, it's comforting. It is. Yeah. It's like it's like right. visiting old friends. Like, you know, what right? I mean? Like if someone's gonna die on the show, I know they're gonna die, so it yep. won't be a shock. Yep. So I yep. can handle it. Yep. Indeed. Thank you so much, Mary Kate. You are full of wisdom. Truly, I just learned so much. So thank yeah. you. Anytime. Welcome back. Anytime.